Emily, and I'm the boss. No, you're not. But my name is Emily. And I'm Vanessa. And this is Cover to Cover. Now let's talk about some books, y'all. Oh, call. Um, so today we're talking about When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi. It was published in 2016, and it is a nonfiction book written by a man who was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer in his last year of residency. Um, with his initial love of literature and a drive to help mankind, Paul used his last bit of energy to write about his experience um, on both sides of the doctor-patient relationship and wrestle with life's really big questions. What does it mean to live a meaningful life, and how does facing death prioritize your life? It's it's a lot. So with that, take a deep breath, and Emily, get us started. What do you think? Yeah, it's definitely not a light topic, but I feel like it's a necessary one to discuss. Um, so we might not be our usual funny selves today, um, but that's okay. Um, I love this book mostly because I almost view it as a sacred text. Mm. So in Harry Potter and the Sacred Text, which is another podcast that we love, you should go check out because it's amazing. Um, they talk about how you can make any text into a sacred text um, by making it applicable to your life. And I really feel that way when Breath Becomes Air. Um, not because of the re- relatability of Paul, even though he's a really relatable person. Um, just from the way he tries to tries to find meaning in life. Um, but also just, yeah, through everything. Like everything throughout the book. And I feel like um, the thoughts that he uh, explores while trying to arrive to conclusions about life and its meaning are are something we can all take something from, even if we're not religious people, um, which was why I was interested in discussing this with you, because I know that you are, like, super into, like, following different religions and using different practices and learning from those practices. And I have a lot of friends that like are atheists or who don't practice, like who practice a variety of religions. So seeing like reading this book and then seeing how we can find something to apply to our lives, despite the fact that we might not believe the same way that he does. Awesome. Great. And yeah, we'll totally get into that because it's, it does come from a non-religious almost even non-spiritual point of view. Um, him being a doctor is great to just dive into like the medical aspect of this and what it's like to face death from one side as a doctor and from the other side as a patient. That that was probably the thing that I loved the most about it. Um, for me, this was a really hard book to read. Um, and I, I apologize now, I may cry through some of this, so just be prepared for that. Um, but like in our family, we've recently gone through a really big tragedy where we spent a month in the ICU um, with someone who who died prematurely way before they were supposed to. And um, and so for me to for him to come at to come at life and death from a very medical, very like he's a neurosurgeon, right? So like from a very medical, very clinical approach was just rough. In fact, I was so angry at Paul because he reminded me of the doctors in the ICU that, um, oh, that I couldn't, I, that they, they didn't, I was in too much trauma to realize that they were acting in the best interest of our family member who was in the ICU. Um, so I had to actually like, skip, you'll, you'll hate me for this. I had to skip to the end of the book and read the epilogue, which was written by his wife. Right. Um, and, and, 
because what I experienced through this trauma was the trauma that everyone but the victim feels, right? Right. So how the how the husband feels, how the everyone but the victim, the rest of the family feels, right? So that's what I was dealing with through this entire personal tragedy that we've been going through. Um, and where sometimes the, the victim gets like put up as a hero, I was struggled a lot with that. And it, I had to like, I read the first bit of it, then I jumped to the epilogue where uh, Paul's wife talks about the, the issues they were having with their marriage. They were separated in his last year of residency right before his diagnosis and things like that. We're like, ah, I need him to come off that pedestal. I need him to be a real person or I will not be able to empathize with them. And even then, I put the book away for a few weeks and finally, like, ugh, forced myself to finish it. So it wasn't a great read for me, and I can't say that I love it because I think that I was too close to that trauma and we were still living in the middle of it. Um, So for me, it was like, ugh. (laughs) I don't super love this book, um, but I... I can discuss it, I promise. And I think there's a lot of people that have that feeling, though. We have a lot of people. Um, we're a multi-platform book club, so we have platforms on Facebook, uh, Twitter, Instagram, etc. And we've had people commenting and messaging us about how, how difficult this book is to read and how um, they've chosen not to read it, which is totally fine. Um, but I do feel... I don't know how you feel now, like, having read it, if it, like, helped you through that experience at Hmm. all to maybe see that different perspective like maybe see that the doctors were trying in their own individual way how how did that make you feel Hmm. solid question i think like the place i was in right then um the member of our family who was who was actually in the accident and was in the icu she is making a better recovery but because she had a tbi it wasn't great when i was reading this book um, it was still in the middle of all that trauma and the the like consequences of it and and I he tries to wrap up the book in a I don't know it feels like there's a lot of things that I could read between the lines or like he's glossing over some stuff and that's what I got really angry about but now like that was a couple months ago there's a lot that's happened in that situation in our family in the last couple months that have made it a lot better so it is kind of on the upswing. And so I don't feel as angry about this book now as I did then. Um, if I, if you gave me another year and I read it again, I think I would feel better about it. And it, but it, for me, it was a real exercise in, um, like listening to, to you and how much you love this book. And then for me to really hate this book for a while, I realized that so much of reading, and I think what makes reading a sacred practice, no matter what the text is, whether it's the Bible or any, any text that's out there, so much of what makes reading a sacred practice is what you bring to it, right? right? Is the like the baggage that I brought to the table and said, okay, Paul, help me out with this. And he couldn't. And so I'm left sitting there like, ugh, I, I need to find a way to work through this some more. Right. Um, and I, and I, you didn't bring that baggage to the table. So our reading experiences are totally different. And I think that's what makes a text sacred is the treatment of it, what you bring to it, and the attention that it draws to the experiences you're going through. Right. Yeah, I I definitely feel that way too. And it's I haven't experienced a similar trauma, but I've experienced different things too. Mm-hmm. I feel like it really helped me to understand how doctors process a situation, seeing him like try to process at the beginning of the book. The beginning of the book is honestly my favorite part. Mm. Seeing him go from because I just find that the most relatable seeing him go from an english major Mm. to um wanting to work in the medical field and i was like his reasoning behind choosing to do that like 
because he says with English that he learned how to interpret and find meaning. And, like, that was something he was searching through throughout his entire life. But with um, with biology and entering the medical field, he was able to actually practice finding meaning. So do the action himself. Mm-hmm. And um, so I relate more to that side of him more than to the second half of the book. I mean, it's hard to relate to that <laughs> at all unless I'm sure that's something you've been through, in which case you probably don't want to read it at all. Mm-hmm. But like reading that, how he like came to that decision and just his general need to find meaning and express that meaning mm-hmm. um, was something that really struck a chord with me. So Yeah, and it's... I, I agree with you. I think for me, the most poignant moment in the book in terms of like for like watching him be forced to address those things and like what is meaningful is that friend of his who goes through residency with him and then they kind of lose touch because they're both they get sent to different programs and they um, they have like different schedules and so they kind of lose touch and then he finds out kind of through the Dr. Grapevine that this friend has taken his own life because he couldn't put up with the stress like the stress and the and the like, constant I think he was in the ER like his assignment was in the ER right and that's just a lot of things for one person to deal with on no sleep and no food right um and so for me that was probably the most poignant moment where where he said like I'm doing this and I'm doing it cerebrally and everybody's fine until he finds out his friend committed suicide and then he has to really force with like force himself to think through like is what I'm doing okay? Is it this weird voyeurism or am I really trying to help people? Am I like developing that God complex or am I actually like, am I being a martyr or am I actually doing good here? Like what's, what's my intention in being a doctor? And I think that's for me, that sets up the back half of the book for when he becomes a patient for it to be a real vulnerable experience instead of a, instead of a, why is this happening to me? What was me kind of thing. Right. And the fact that he's able to define everything mm-hmm. that was happening to him so clearly kind of makes you makes you hate him because you're like... Totally. Like, it's just so frustrating that he's able to put it to words so clearly, all mm-hmm. of his emotions, that he's able to label every single thing and understand it mm-hmm. um, from his own perspective or the way that he's learned to deal with it. Um, so, like, I can get that much. Mm-hmm. And I... Having... So I've, I've talked to the people involved in this, like, personal tragedy, and, and they were like, yeah, you're fine to talk about this. Just keep all the identifiers out. Right. Um, but, like, what frustrated me most about the first half of the book where Paul is taking a very clinical approach is that there are other people close to the situation that are in the medical field, and I think they should have known better about some of the behavior that they were exhibiting, and they should have been able to identify it like the way Paul did. So for me, it was like, see, other people have been through med school knew what was happening to him. Even though he's dying of stage four cancer, he was able to identify these things. Why weren't you, you people, able to do this too and help the situation instead of make it worse? And so that was like me working through all of my own stuff. But you know? then you remember he's a Harvard graduate and probably like <laughs> at the top of the line. I mean, they were like mm-hmm. totally. trying to bring him in for a professorship, I think, like mm-hmm. at Harvard. So that's a pretty big deal. He had to be pretty, right. um, one of the top neurosurgeons in the world. So... Yeah. yeah, I mean, you can't be so hard on them, even though you want to be. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and I think it was a nice way for me, like, maybe not a nice way, but, but like, I didn't realize I was harboring so much anger towards them until I was like, why am I angry at a man who's who's passed away already? Like, spoiler alert, y'all, he died at the end of this book. Well, you know that, yeah. like, within the mm-hmm. prologue, this isn't really a spoiler. Yeah, I mean. so I, like, so I, I found myself getting 
my heart rate was increasing. I was like sitting in Starbucks, super chill, trying to pound through this book, but my heart rate was increasing and I was getting angry and I like somebody called me and I got on the phone, I was like really snippy with them. And I was like, why am I angry at this? And I realized it was because I was still angry at these other people in this situation that our family was in. So I I like appreciated this as a sacred reading practice to say like, okay, I'm gonna sit with this book, I'm gonna be angry for a while and that's okay. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of that's part of the like reading process. I think so too, because like sometimes people will say, Oh, I don't like a book. Like, but I, I didn't like it because it dealt with this, or mm-hmm. I didn't like it because it dealt with that. And to me, that's not really not liking the book. Mm-hmm. That's not liking the subject, mm-hmm. which I get. And that's cool. You, you're allowed to have your opinion on that. But I feel like to not like a book because the subject doesn't really work. You know what I mean? You have mm-hmm. to be able to come at it um, from that different perspective where you're trying to be empathetic and understand that person instead of trying to rule how they've decided to deal with things. Absolutely. And this is one of the reasons that I, um, I try not to read anything about a book before I read the book. Same thing with movies. I try not to watch the trailer too much. I mean, unless it's Harry Potter, Um, (laughs) like I try not to read, like watch the trailer too much, try not to get too involved in it because I want to be able to suspend my disbelief and give myself wholly over to the director or the author's point of view and just immerse myself in it and say, okay, I am no longer myself. I'm going to be in your shoes however you wrote this. Because no matter what you what you consume, you're always consuming it through the lens of the person who produced it, right? So right. no matter, I, I don't think it's possible to have a real experience. Like if we were to take this back to, to you know, sacred text of a canon, type so if you take the bible you're never going to get the real experience that happened in the bible you're always going to get it through the the invisible lens of the person who wrote it down right so through the secretary through the translator through the the scribe whoever wrote it down you're only going to get what they thought was important and then you're supposed to like you know derive meaning from that um this is interesting because you do when breath becomes air is interesting because you do get a man who is dying in his own words but you still have to deal with the editor and his wife who took all of his notes and put it together into something that was publishable after he died. So I, I like that life is a lot like that, you know, like you're never going to be able to have a pure experience or pure truth. You always have to take the truth from whatever lens you're looking at it from. So if Mm -hmm. I come at a book and we're going to be talking about books later in the podcast that I just didn't like, they're just not my jam, but I understand that why I didn't like them is because of my background or my upbringing or my personal tastes and preferences instead of like, it was a bad book, you know? Right. Yeah. I, I can't agree with that. Something else that I thought was interesting was, uh, at the beginning when he's like just figuring about out about his illness is how long he takes to recognize it well not just to recognize it but to accept it yes and like Mm -hmm. that period of acceptance is like when he finally is like like when his body is so broken down that he has to go take care of it Mm -hmm. and i i feel like that's something that happens for us a lot on a spiritual level Mm -hmm. we'll recognize that something's wrong in our lives but we we just keep on powering through until we can't possibly deal with it anymore it's terminal and we have to like act we have to ask for help and actually deal with that Mm -hmm. and so i just i thought that was really a really interesting perspective Mm -hmm. and like i enjoyed that he didn't try to cover that up 
trying mm-hmm. to he didn't try to be like well i'm so awesome that i self-diagnosed my, myself even yeah. though he did mm-hmm. but he was like yeah it took me it took me a while like i i noticed these things and mm-hmm. I, I probably could have caught it earlier but it didn't and that at com- least that's what i got from it totally and i like i saw that when he is talking with his doctor right when he's finally got the diagnosis and they're working on treatments and there's this scale for like what your life expectancy is and he knows what that scale is but he doesn't know where he sits on it and his doctor refuses to tell him and that reminds him that like nope you are not in a position of authority in this in this situation because you're the patient not the doctor and i like for me that was he he like keeps going and he keeps he keeps like trying to go back to re- he tries to finish his residency while he's taking chemo treatments well that which i thought was totally crazy but he that's who he is right and he's right. he hadn't quite accepted that he's going to die yet yeah until he walks out the hospital for the last time and he's like i can't do this right um, and, that's and he wh- finally passes all along the baton mm-hmm. yeah that was that was one of the most powerful points in the mm-hmm. the book to me is when he's finally like i could keep doing this but I can't, mm-hmm. like, emotionally keep putting myself through mm-hmm. having to diagnose myself constantly with different things. Yeah. I want to address your question about um, maybe, like, how we do that to ourselves spiritually. Right. So one of the things that I, um, that my personal belief system is that you have a set of, every person has a set of personal rituals that keep them functioning, whether it's your morning coffee or your evening prayers or your gym time, whatever it is. We think about them as routines, but if you approach them more purposely, they turn into rituals and they take you from one state of being to another, whether it's sleeping to awake or work to relaxing to go home or, or whatever it is, right? A ritual stands at that space between states of being. And, um, and for me, this this book helped me understand like how to get through from a state of anger to a state of acceptance. And you see Paul do that from a state of of you know denial to acceptance, and then to progression and to what am I going to do with what I've got? And so I I often ask people who are uh, this seems to be a problem in our generation. People are leaving organized religion. Um, I often tell them two things: one, take whatever personal routines you have, make them intentional. Um, so that you have a, a set of personal rituals that you abide by, right? So that you don't lose a sense of moral compass, you don't lose a sense of who you are, and you can keep functioning. And the second part of that is, what systems can you put in place, or what rituals can you put in place to make sure that you're still functioning when you're not at your best? So when when trauma hits, right, then then how, what if you already have rituals in place and you just keep doing them, right? So almost like he described like scrubbing in and and like going in and like, putting on music and and getting into a surgery, that's his personal ritual that keeps him functioning. And that kept him functioning for a really long time um, until he until he could get mentally and emotionally prepared to accept that he was actually dying. So I, f- I feel like we need to do the same thing in our daily life where we say, okay, I have systems in place. I always get up at the same time. I always run in the morning. I always have morning coffee here. I always, you know, order the same thing here. Like I once a week I go to church or once a week I do yoga or or whatever it is. And if you have those systems in place, then when trauma hits, you have some reserves to call on um, when you need them. And you can keep functioning at a pretty high level until you get through the crisis, or at least to a place where you can mentally and emotionally deal with that. Yeah. Or if you're the kind of person that knows you're not going to be able to do any of that, to have your own personal emergency room. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So somebody that you're going to go to Mm -hmm. when you reach your breaking point. So Absolutely. Yeah. 
how did you come to this book? So like, obviously I came to this book because you gave it to me, but I was in trauma. So like, where did you find this book and how did it come to you? So my mom actually read this book first. I'm not sure how she found out about it or picked it up, but she was like, oh my goodness, Emily, you have to read this. It's so good. And you're going to cry a lot. So you should go get some tissues, (laughs) but you you absolutely have to read it. I was like, okay (laughs) so I read it mostly for for that reason just Mm -hmm. I don't know books are one of those things where it's like okay like I can connect with somebody over this or Mm -hmm. share this experience with somebody so it wasn't through my own personal search okay and then what did you come away with it though so like what's your biggest takeaway from this book right um I guess the fact that there's meaning everywhere Mm. like and that it's up to you to find it in whatever way you're going to choose to find it. Like, for Paul, like, his quest for meaning, he, like, found his purpose and found that meaning through through medicine. And for me, like, I've stuck more on the other end where, like, he was with English. Like, he was like, I don't, like, really find myself acting to find meaning through this. But that, for me, like, that's how I find meaning. Mm-hmm. So knowing that whatever you're doing, as long as you're trying to, like, find something more through that that was something that really stuck with me and continues to stick with me interesting okay um i i didn't get that but i think that's from because where i'm at right now do you know what i'm saying like there are definitely other books that we've read recently that i think ah this inspires me to like make sure that i've got my personal purpose on earth dialed in um but i i think that's a distance from trauma kind of situation. So my like recommendation for this book is like, I would definitely recommend you read it, but if you've recently had a tragedy, if you've recently spent some time in the ICU, if you've been in the ER anytime recently, just give it a year or two. Um, if you haven't, and like you're maybe you're in the, in in a place where you are able to intellectually, emotionally wrestle with like questions of mortality, then definitely dive on in because you, this, this helps you get close to a trauma that's not yours. And forces you to think about or yourself. Or maybe even if you can't deal with it, maybe read the epilogue like yeah. you did. <laughs> yes, read the back first. <laughs> and read yeah. some, I, I'm sure there's some interviews with his wife up online. I mm-hmm. think those would be really interesting to watch as well. Or yeah, read more about her and how she dealt with that. Yeah, and I like. I'm gonna. There's a couple paragraphs from the epilogue that I absolutely love that are that kind of sum that up. Is like, how do you like? what is this book and why you should read it? And so I'm just going to give you a couple cents of that. Um, Paul's wife says, when breath becomes air is in a sense unfinished, derailed by Paul's rapid decline, but that is an essential component of its truth of the reality Paul faced during the last year of his life. Paul wrote relentlessly fueled by purpose, motivated by a ticking clock. He started with the midnight burst when he was still a neurosurgeon, neurosurgery chief's resident, softly tapping away on his laptop as he lay next to me in bed. Later, he spent afternoons in his recliner, drafted paragraphs in his oncologist's waiting room, took phone calls from his editor while chemotherapy dripped into his veins, carried his silver laptop everywhere he went. When his fingertips developed painful fissures because of his chemotherapy, we found seamless silver-lined gloves that allowed use of a trackpad and keyboard. Strategies for retaining the mental focus needed to write, despite the punishing fatigue of progressive cancer, were the focus of his palliative care appointments. Um, He was determined to keep writing. And I... I love that about this book that that you see that the human spirit is unbreakable even though the human body is totally frail the spirit is unbreakable and I think if there's one <laughs> sorry if there's one takeaway that I brought with that is that if you 
if you aren't in the middle of a tragedy, use the time to find your purpose and go after it no matter what. Right. Yeah. I I completely agree with that. And I guess, like, the final question is, would you recommend this book? Yes. Yeah. But, like, take it cautiously. Because <laughs> <laughs> it was definitely, like, a lot of, a lot of public crying in Starbucks when I was reading the first time of this. Um, the barista's probably like, want some free coffee? <laughs> yeah. Luckily, they know me really well. It's fine. So, yeah. like, what is it? You okay? And I'm like, I'll be okay. Um, but, yeah, so, like, I would definitely recommend it. But if you've had a tragedy in your life recently, take it with a grain of salt. Or, like, buy it, put it on the shelf, come at it, maybe piecemeal. Um, something like that. What about you? Would you recommend it? Yeah. Well, I kind of... <laughs> I think we know the answer I to this. I kind of, like, chose this book for the podcast, so yes, 100%, I would recommend it, mostly because I I feel like it forces you, if you're not an empathetic person, to be empathetic mm. and to take a look at, really fall into somebody else's life and live the way that person would for just a day, because it's a really short book. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Awesome. Great. Uh, well... We're going to take a deep breath, take a breather, and then uh, next week we'll see you guys with a really fun book that is uh, absolute, an absolutely remarkable thing by Hank Green. It's his debut novel, and uh, it involves aliens named Carl, so it should be a pretty fun read. Find us on Instagram and Facebook at ev.covertocover. Read our monthly column in Idaho Falls Magazine, and tune in next week for more.